Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Kat Arney. In this episode, we bring you a very special interview with Mary Claire King, one of the world's leading geneticists, whose work has spanned everything from comparing chimps and humans to finding the first breast cancer gene to reuniting families that have been torn apart. The 8th of March is a double whammy in the calendar of days to remember. Not only is it International Women's Day, yes ladies, we just get the one, but it's also International Mendel Day, the anniversary of the day in 1865 that Gregor Mendel presented the final instalment of his groundbreaking work on inheritance to his local scientific society in what's now Brunei in the Czech Republic. So the Genetic Society decided to use the 8th of March to bring both of these themes together, hosting a day of talks at the Royal Institution in London in collaboration with the Mendelianum, the museum and research centre in Bruno dedicated to Mendel's life and work. This culminated in a public lecture by leading geneticist Mary Claire King. Now the American Cancer Society professor at the University of Washington in Seattle, Mary Claire has contributed to many areas of genetic science during a career spanning more than four decades, from her early work showing that human and chimpanzee genes are 99% identical to finding BRCA1, the first breast cancer gene. Since the 80s, she's also been putting her genetic skills to use to solve human rights abuses and war crimes all over the world. I was lucky enough to sit down with her for a fascinating chat about her life and work, starting with the question of what got her interested in science in the first place. I was interested in math before I was interested in biology, way before. I became interested in math because when I was very small, my dad was already home. He was, my dad was born in 1890, so he was a full generation older than most dads. And he was already largely bedridden by the time I was five, six years old. So he was home. And that was early in the days of television. And one of the very first things to be shown on television were baseball games. So my dad and I would watch baseball games together. And he would make up story problems for me. So this is a baseball story problem. So this is for the American listener. Ernie Banks is up. He's batting for the Cubs. His batting average is 277. My dad would say, let's suppose he's going to be up three times in this game. How many hits is he going to need to hit out of those three to make his batting average go to 280? And I would, I was six, and I would listen and listen, and I would say, I don't know. And he would say, you're right, you don't know. What more information do you need in order to be able to figure it out? And the answer, of course, is you need to know how many at-bats he's had already. So the idea of working out story problems while watching baseball seemed to me perfectly natural in the way everyone watched baseball. I wasn't fully aware <laughs> of how most baseball watching was done. It's like Darwin's children are like, where does your daddy do his barnacles? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the idea of story problems was never foreign to me, was never threatening to me. And as I grew up, I just liked story problems. And of course, maths is basically story problems. Proofs are basically story problems. I did maths as an undergraduate, but it was clear to me, because my younger brother was much, much, much better at maths than I was, that there was no way I was going to be able to be a professional mathematician. So for graduate school, I went to Berkeley. And I went thinking I would do statistics more tractable than 
than, than basic maths, got to Berkeley, and just for fun, took a genetics course from Kurt Stern, the last time he taught before he retired. Oh, wow. Right. And I just fell in love with it. I thought, imagine getting paid to do this. This is story problems made, made relevant and critical for life. Made flesh. Made flesh, exactly. Made flesh in a, in a wide variety of different species, some without even flesh, right? So I transferred from statistics to genetics and have never looked back. And then when you started thinking about genetics as a scientist, mm. what was your first problem that you addressed then once you, you started going into this world of genetics? Right. I was interested from the beginning in, in the idea of variation and evolution and how one could understand evolution on the basis of the, the, the basic ways that species change. So we have mutation selection, migration, and drift. And those are the four evolutionary processes by which species change. And I thought, how can we understand from the, from the variation that we see in a species that those processes? And this was in the mid-60s. So the idea of doing protein electrophoresis was just getting off the ground. We weren't yet working with DNA. And I at first thought I might be able to get a grip on that by working with bacterial species, by working on problems in bacterial evolution. Um, it didn't work, both because I didn't have good enough hands. I had, of course, come out of math. I had no background in experimental work at all. And because the, uh, the, the electrophoretic methods of the time were not sufficiently precise to be able to see small small degrees of electrophoretic mobility difference. They, they, they were just coming along. And I wasn't nearly good enough technologically to make those advances myself. So the really tiny differences right. you might want to see, you just couldn't resolve them. I, I, you could resolve them, but they would resolve differently in different experiments day by day. And it was, it was largely because we were doing electrophoresis. It sounds ridiculous in retrospect, but we were doing electrophoresis either in tiny tubes or on not quite standardized gels so that the the resolution was good but it was not exactly reproducible. So bacteria were a, a bit of a bust and then where did you turn your attention in search of some answers to, to how these evolutionary processes okay. might work? Well this was Berkeley in the 60s so there was a lot happening <laughs> <I'll bet. laughs> right. and so I, I got very discouraged with it and on the one hand, I got personally discouraged. On the other hand, the, the, the gentleman I was working for, Dr. Stanier, Roger Stanier, um, moved to France in 68. He got very discouraged with working at Berkeley. And, and, and at about that same time, um, Ralph Nader came to California to work on what became the California Project. Who owns the land of California and what are they doing with it? And hired me as the biologist on that project. So I, for, oh, for quite a while, for a number of months, wasn't a student. I worked for Ralph and got very involved in issues like you know, farm worker safety, um, the completely different issue of, of forest practices. So it wasn't in a lab, wasn't in school. Then uh, Ralph Nader said at the end of that project, he said, well, why don't you come back to Washington, D.C.? I'm going to set up what became PERG and work there. We want to do the same thing with Congress that we've done about California. What's what's happening in U.S. Congress? Who owns Congress? <laughs> and I was going to do it. And I talked to my informal advisor, Alan Wilson. He wasn't my official advisor. And Alan said something really 
incredibly helpful. He said, it would be much wiser to finish your PhD. And I said, but none of my experiments work. He said, if people whose experiments didn't work stopped doing science, no one would be left doing science. Oh, yeah. yeah right? <laughs> and he said, perhaps we can figure out a way to design a project for you that will take advantage of the fact that you like to write equations and that won't require as much um, technical tour de force as the project did in the Stanier lab. And I said, so tell me why it's so critical that I have a PhD. And he said, well, if you, if you go now to Washington, D.C., and, and, you, and you work on the project, it's, there's no question it's righteous work. It's, it's a great project. But if you, if you do this with a bachelor's degree, you'll never control the agenda. And if you want to control the agenda in whatever it is you do, you need to have an advanced degree in that area. And it was incredibly good advice. It was just it, just, it just made me feel that I wasn't the only one who was having trouble, and that it's really important to have an advanced degree. It was completely outside of my family's history. Indeed, it was outside of Alan Wilson's family's history. But he understood exactly the issues. So that's where the project on human and chimpanzee evolution came from. The idea was, of course, by then, this was a couple of years later, so the methods of comparing species were more tractable and turned out to be a fairly technical project after all. But <laughs> you know how these things happen, <laughs> yeah. right? But it was, it was a completely different atmosphere in the Wilson lab. The Wilson lab was a remarkable place. And Alan died of leukemia in his 50s. It was just horrible. But this was, this was when he was, gosh, in retrospect, Alan must have been in his mid-40s when I was working with him. The lab... Over Alan's career, his lab had 50% women, 50% men, which for the time was amazing. I mean, that was probably 90% of the women in biochemistry or genetics who were in the Wilson lab. And it was this completely egalitarian place. There was a great deal of criticism within the lab of each other's work. But outside of the lab, there was complete loyalty to lab. And I I loved it. And the the project on the on the degree of distinction between human and chimpanzee proteins, what we would now call DNA coding sequences, uh, was a straightforward project, allowed me to do a little bit of math, to develop a little bit of evolutionary theory, and led to this result that at first, of course, I thought was my failure to find any differences, because here were humans and chimpanzees looking exactly the same, almost. And I thought, oh, this is just that I can't resolve. It's got to be me. But there were the occasional, very occasional proteins where there were differences. So I thought, it's not completely me. Sometimes these actually do resolve. And after I'd been working on this for, oh gosh, I don't know, a couple of years, Alan said, he said, well, have you considered the possibility that you've done it all properly and that there really are not differences between humans and chimpanzees? So I said, well, actually, no, I hadn't considered that as <laughs> yeah. a possibility at all. Like maybe you have done it right after all, and we are basically just naked apes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, so we're, you know, we're scaled down, except that we're not. Anatomically, two subspecies of mice are virtually indistinguishable. I mean, the, the bone links are relatively identical, almost identical. Whereas humans and chimpanzees, obviously, you can see. I mean, yeah. even a complete lay person can see the difference. It, it yeah, I think I could, I could yeah, nail that. Yeah. Right. So, so that led us to this idea of if if the protein sequences are so similar, and yet the morphological differences and the behavioral differences are so great, we still have this contrast. We still have the difference between the the molecules on the one hand, 
and the morphology on the other. So how can this be? And that led us to the hypothesis that the difference between humans and chimpanzees, morphologically and behaviorally and so on, might be due not to the protein sequences themselves, but to their timing and locale of expression. I like to think of this as the kind of, it's not what you've got, it's what you do with it that counts That's right. sort of model. Exactly, exactly. And when and where you do what you do, it's not what, it's not what you have. So we postulated that at the time. This was 1975 by the time it was published. and it, We weren't in a position to be able to test it directly. And by the time it was directly testable with the human and chimpanzee genome sequences, Alan had died. But, but while on the one hand he was vindicated, uh, on the other hand he knew he was right. Or he knew we were right. I mean, it was, I mean it, was, it was a real partnership. And it's the kind of partnership that I've tried to have with students ever since. I, mean, I will never be as good a mentor as Alan was. But the idea of working with data that really is good data and developing around it a hypothesis that makes sense in an evolutionary context about a problem that's important. I do the same thing now, but I'm, I'm now interested primarily in, in serious illness and disease phenotypes. But it's the same idea. I did love what kind of led out from from that feeling was that almost like the sort of the control switches that turn mm -hmm. genes on and off, right. they're evolution's playground. You know, you don't want to mess with your genes too much mm -hmm. because proteins do important mm -hmm. things, but mm -hmm. boy, you can play with the switches. Sure, and the, the idea that the more complex an organism, the more different ways you have to exploit the same protein sequence, uh, both in terms of there being multiple different transcripts and in terms of the timing of when those transcripts are expressed and the placement of expression of those transcripts. And this, of course, also has huge implications for disease because one form of dysregulation, for example, of, of a gene that may be important in development of brain could lead to autism. Another dysregulation could lead to schizophrenia. And each of these genes has its own um, extraordinarily complex profile of regulatory sites, which we're just now beginning to learn what are. Yeah, I think it's a, an interesting comparison with if you have something that's very simple, like a simple way of telling the time, like an egg timer, you can only break that in so many ways. Uh -huh. But if you have a Swiss watch right. with lots and lots and lots of different parts mm -hmm. and different ways of doing it, that can break in, in all kinds of right. wonderful ways. And, and it explains why disease is such a complicated genetic problem. Mm -hmm. I particularly like that analogy because the idea of the Swiss watch is that it can be dysregulated and therefore the timing can be a little off without the watch being smashed. And if the watch is smashed, that's fatal. But if it's just a little bit off because, because a wire is bent a little bit incorrectly or because a little bit of dust has gotten in, environmental problem, uh, that can lead to a very serious illness that is the consequence of that dysregulation. And we see that with serious mental illness. We see that, that one gene that is dysregulated can lead to autism. A different gene that is dysregulated can, in a different way, can lead to schizophrenia. And there's, of course, thousands of such genes. So any one of them dysregulated can lead to mental illness without being lethal. It's, it's fascinating now that we have the tools to be able to work this out. I like to think that Genetics is a way of thinking that now goes back, well, without the word being applied to it, goes back 
thousands and thousands of years, as long as people have been thinking about history. But actively thinking about genetics with what we, with what we understand to be genetics goes back now, what, 150 years. And now we have the tools to answer the questions we've been asking all that time. So genomics is a set of tools that allow us to address these really ancient questions. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and it would be great if you could rate and review the show and tell all your friends. Later that evening in the Royal Institution's famous Red Lecture Theatre, we all sat and listened to Mary Claire talk about the hunt for BRCA1, the first so-called breast cancer gene, and the implications for women and their families of carrying a faulty copy, which significantly increases the risk of breast and ovarian cancer. She traced a fascinating journey from the observations of 19th century French neuroscientist Paul Broker, who noticed his own wife's family was affected by many cases of breast cancer, through her own mathematical calculations, showing that she would have more luck finding the elusive gene if she focused her efforts on women who developed the disease at an unusually young age. And finally, her work to develop a genetic testing panel to help people discover their own risk. What she didn't talk about was the story of the bittersweet week in 1981 that set the scene for that discovery, which she tells with tremendous humour in a podcast from The Moth. You can find the link in the show notes at geneticsunzip.com and I very strongly recommend you listen to it. Rather than focus on that aspect of her work, I wanted to find out more about the story behind Mary Claire's involvement in using genetics to solve murder cases and reunite families, tackling some of the most tragic human rights abuses and war crimes of the 20th century. She started with the children who'd vanished under the Argentinian dictatorship in the 1970s. And apologies for the slight background noise in this part of the interview, as the Royal Institution staff were getting the coffee cups ready for the tea break. I got brought into the use of genetics to investigate human rights abuses by the grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo in Argentina. The, the grandmothers formed themselves in 1977 in response to the disappearance of their adult children and their uh, either infant or in utero grandchildren. They were aware that their children were disappeared and they began to learn bit by bit by bit in the 1970s and early 1980s of small children who were still alive and showing up in households where there had not been anyone pregnant. And they collected this information very systematically and realized as the years went on during the Argentinian dictatorship of the 70s and, and early 80s that Genetics could be a way for them to figure out who was who, to figure out who these children were that had apparently been kidnapped after birth or born in captivity and kept in military households, sold to collaborators in the military one way or another, were in the hands of people who were involved with the military. So through Friends of Friends, 
they learned of me, I learned of them. I had, I had taught in, in South America and Chile in the 1970s, so I was accustomed to teaching in, the, in Latin America. And they first asked Luca Cavalli-Sforza, one of the great human geneticists, to help them develop the statistical approach to addressing that question. The question being, if we identify a child that we believe might be among the children who was either born in captivity to a young woman who has since been killed, or was kidnapped as a prelingual infant with his or her parents and the parents then killed, can we, by having a sample of blood from that child and from grandparents, determine who that child is? So paternity testing, but reapplied to grand paternity testing. And Luca and several of us worked that out as a straightforward Bayesian statistical problem. And the grandmother's immediate response was, good, come to Buenos Aires and operationalize it. And Lucas asked me to, to do that, and I was happy to do it. This was immediately after the fall of the militaries, after the failure of the Malvinas-Falklands War that the Argentinian military, of course, initiated in order to try to distract attention from their problems at home and cost the lives of a large number of young Argentinian soldiers and, of course, was a disaster. Um, but they did have to withdraw after. And in consequence... Uh, election was held, Raul Alfonsin, who was a human rights lawyer, became president and established the Commission on the Disappearance of Persons. And I was a consultant to that commission. And I went to work with the grandmothers on how to operationalize the idea of grand paternity testing. The grandmothers had collected already 145 case records of children who had been seen at least once alive uh, whose parents had disappeared. This was around 1984, a time before the DNA fingerprinting techniques that are commonplace today had even been developed. So Mary Claire and her team had to use a technique called HLA typing, which was already being used to match organ donors with recipients based on the similarity of certain molecules produced by the immune system. These HLA molecules vary a lot between people, so finding strong similarities in blood samples between grandparents and kidnapped children proved to be a useful tool for matching up the families that had been torn apart. So we began work. Uh, we carried out some identifications of children. Uh, we took those cases to court. We were successful. And with that success over the first nine months, a year, came the realization that there were an enormous number of these cases and that it was not going to be feasible for all of them to have a solution with, that was HLA-based. There were both logistic and genetic realities. The genetic reality was that one either needed to have or be able to reconstruct the HLA types of all four grandparents, and if they weren't all living, and they frequently were not, how were you going to do it? Logistically, to actually work out HLA antigen types, one needed to have fresh blood worked on immediately. So all these challenges. By this time it was 85, 86. I was going back and forth from Berkeley to Buenos Aires working on the problem. And it was exactly the time that the polymerase chain reaction was being developed by my friend Carrie Mollis. And Carrie had been a graduate student in biochemistry when I was a graduate student in genetics, so we knew each other. And he was already working for a company, but he was in and out of the Wilson lab. I was still in and out of the Wilson lab, even though my faculty job was a different department. And so I knew about PCR, preliminary chain reaction, within days of it 
first being developed. I mean, I knew it back in the days when we would when we would move tubes from one water bath to another water bath oh, to old another. School, or, yeah. Old school, old <laughs> school, really old school, and it made it possible to work with. Sequences, of course, all sequencing was by hand, literally base pair by base pair by hand, um, without having a massive amount of DNA from the person. So Alan Wilson was already using this approach to work out human evolutionary trees, and he was sequencing part of the mitochondrial DNA genome. Mitochondria are the power stations inside all our cells, responsible for providing the energy for life. They contain their own little package of DNA that's highly variable between people and can be detected using PCR, which makes many copies of a particular piece of DNA so it can be detected and analysed. Importantly for Mary Claire's work reuniting families, virtually all the mitochondria in a person's body come from their mother as egg cells are packed with them while sperm don't bring any of their own. So, if the researchers had a blood sample from Granny, then they should be able to tell whether an unidentified boy or girl was their grandchild, even without having a sample from Mum, as the same mitochondria have passed from grandmother to mother to child. In fact, it wasn't just Granny's mitochondrial DNA that could provide the key to identifying these kids. So it could be a maternal grandmother, it could be a maternal grandmother's sibling, it could be any relative connected only through females. The relative could be male or female, but you could have a little boy that you were trying to identify, but if you had the maternal grandmother of that little boy, you could sequence him and you could sequence her, and a match was highly meaningful. And Alan, bless him, had already worked out how much variability there was in this particular region of the mitochondrial genome of interest because he was interested in it for evolutionary purposes. So we were able to take advantage of all that information to sequence hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people whose identities were not in dispute in Argentina in order to get a sense of what the background variation would look like and to put into application the use of mitochondrial DNA sequencing to establish maternal relationships very quickly. And of course now it's routinely used in forensics worldwide, but it was the first application, all done by hand. and works. I mean, genetics is very powerful. And, and like anything else that's powerful, you can use it for good or you can use it for ill. And in this case, we were able to use it for very good purposes. I was soon asked to help in the identification of remains, because with the polymerase chain reaction, one needed to have only a very, very, very small amount of DNA in order to amplify and have more. So we were able to identify remains of people who had been killed by the militaries by working with DNA from their teeth. So if the tooth is intact, you can think of the tooth like a diamond, and you can cleave it under sterile conditions, cleave it the way you would cleave a diamond. We actually use diamond cleavers. Take out the pulp and use that pulp as a source of DNA for the remains and identify that person by comparing their mitochondrial sequence to the mitochondrial sequence of people who've lost relatives to the militaries. So once we established that principle in Argentina, it became very useful for identifying remains of persons who had been victims of human rights abuses or of wars worldwide. We began to work with, with our American military to identify um, soldiers who'd gone missing in, in Vietnam, 
at the time of the Cambodian invasion, there was a journalist who'd gone missing, Wells Hangen, who, whom we were able to identify, um, soldiers who'd gone missing during World War II, during intervening conflicts in Europe. We were involved in identifying the bones from Ekaterinburg as the Tsar and the Tsarina and, and their children, the physician, his family. It's very powerful as long as you know the background sequences, and it's still used. Looking back over your incredible career, all the things you've been involved in from comparing mm-hmm. humans and chimps, finding genes that are involved in breast cancer, the work mm-hmm. that you're doing uh, to, to give people closure about their, their relatives, mm-hmm. it must be thousands of people that you've helped. How, how do you feel about you know, using mm-hmm. genetics to, to solve these stories? I feel like I've been incredibly fortunate. Genetics is just the most exciting possible thing to do. And I managed to stumble into it at a time when it was just flowering, when it was just opening up. The buds were were just beginning to open. And the kinds of technologies that allow us to address questions that have been really important human questions since there have been people are, are now tractable, and they're tractable for the first time. And my generation of geneticists are the people who are, who are able to approach them. Imagine what Mendel would have done with, with the tools we have now. And all we can do is try to emulate his way of thinking and to take advantage of technology. From solving baseball story problems to solving human story problems, thanks very much to the wonderful Mary Claire King for taking the time to speak with me. We'll have more from the Joint Genetic Society and Mendelianum meeting in a future podcast where I'll be asking the question, if Darwin and Mendel had been on Twitter, where would we be now? How predictable is evolution? The question of what would happen if we ran the tape again is one of the biggest questions in modern day biology. And until recently, it seemed unanswerable. However, the growing number of known cases of parallel or convergent evolution, where two closely related organisms adapt to an environment in the same way, is revealing just how predictable and repeatable evolution can be. In the latest podcast from Heredity, the journal of the Genetic Society, Dr Ali Graham from Oregon State University and Dr Kevin McCracken at the University of Miami chat to James Bergen about their recent work looking at the convergent evolution of three species of South American ducks to low-oxygen, high-altitude environments. And curiously, the ducks seem to have adapted to these breathless heights in the same way that humans have. Here's James and Ali to give you a teaser. These ducks aren't the only organisms that we know of to have adapted to high altitude. So how do your results compare to similar ones conducted in other species? And what do you think your study is contributing to our overall understanding of animal adaptation to high altitudes? There's been a number of studies in various human populations, but some of the genes that pop out the most often across Indian and Tibetan and Ethiopian high altitude populations are EGLN and EPAS for the most part. So seeing that same kind of parallel there was pretty striking. I think more than anything is just how predictable evolution can be. I don't know. I still find that pretty amazing that these continue to be hotspots for natural selection to occur on across a whole bunch of differently related organisms. You can hear that full interview in the latest Heredity podcast. Just search for Heredity in your favourite podcast app or follow the link from the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. 
That's all for now. In the next episode, we'll be telling the stories of some of the overlooked women in 20th century genetics. So do make sure you're subscribed through Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice to make sure you don't miss out. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip or email me podcast at geneticsunzip.com with any questions and feedback. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Katani, and produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and the logo was designed by James Mayle. Thanks very much to Hannah Varrell for production. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye.